Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. Today we're speaking with Lawrence Wilkerson. He volunteered for the Vietnam War, ended up retiring as a colonel, and then became the chief of staff of Secretary of State Colin Powell during the Bush administration. He since went on to teach at William Mary. He's a fascinating gentleman. We spoke to him before, and if you want to check out that podcast, it came out just recently, so this will be part two. And previously we spoke about Empire, Empire Decline, in this conversation, we get a little more in the weeds. We talk about QAnon, the different passions that are taking place in the U.S. and both parties. It's a very interesting conversation. It's wide-ranging, and so let's dive in. Good to have you again, Lawrence. Good to be back with you. So last time we spoke, you had some frustrated millennials across from you hanging signs out in front of your house saying something about, Boomers will pay. Have you have you guys made amends a little bit? Are, are things on better terms than when we left off? I don't have any problem with young people thinking that my generation and those surrounding my generation have screwed up their world. They're right. <laughs> so all I can do is say mea culpa and what can I do to help help you if there's anything I can do to help you. Um, my grandchildren um, are 20, 21, 19, and 14. So uh, the three that are in school now um, are part of that. And mm -hmm. I understand their angst and I understand their, their feelings about my generation. And it's genuine. It's real. It's visceral. They're mad at us. And I don't blame them. I was reading recently how it's an interesting dynamic with generations right now of there is this tension between millennials and boomers, but in the actual family of parent, children, boomer, millennial, the, the, the relationship's actually generally quite good compared to history, which is, is nice. I think that's certainly true uh, with regard to the West. Um, my Chinese friends, my Japanese friends, my Korean friends and others who talk to me about these sorts of things, uh, I think would say it's true about them with variations on a theme, if you will. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's a different, and COVID has done a lot to ramify what you just said. Like I, I was just talking yes. about my grandchildren. Uh, they don't want me to die. Uh, and, and they're, they have great angst about coming into my house unmasked, for example, mm -hmm. they don't want to be the, the producer of the virus that kills me. <laughs> but, but, but on the wider issues, when we have a chance to talk, uh, it, it's fairly serious. I think, my grandchildren have a, a sort of leavened view about it simply because they know how I feel and mm. how outspoken I've been uh, about everything from these endless wars to the profitable way we spend the taxpayers' money um, and the little attention that we've paid to those issues which really comprise a successful society, a successful culture. Um, uh, you know, philosophers from time immemorial have said, look at your prisons if you want to understand the state of your civilization. Look at the practice of law if you want to know how you're doing, those sorts of things. And by those standards, we aren't doing too well. Yeah. And they know it. They know it intuitively, if not intellectually. And often they know it both ways. Well, last time we spoke, and I'd, I'd encourage listeners to go check out the other podcast or YouTube of um, Lawrence and I having a conversation. We spoke about empire, the power of empire, and potential different off-ramps America has going forward. 
some better than others. It was a great discussion. Um, but this time I'd love to dive a little more into the weeds, perhaps, of the different parties we have right now, the left and the right. They're so similar in many ways of these anti-elite populist flavors, but they're quite different in many ways as well. And so I'd love to get some of your thoughts, Lawrence, on the emergence of not just QAnon, but its pervasiveness in the um, in the right. If we have a large portion of a voter base that now possibly has just seen that their vote doesn't matter, because in their view, the vote was stolen. So the uh, the election system is rigged. What does that mean going forward? If we have such a large amount of people who possibly believe they can't enact their passions through a democratic process. If it's as stark as you just described it, it's very dangerous. I'm not sure it's quite that stark, at least not yet. And I would submit to you that I've gotten to know, I'm a Republican, been a Republican all my life. My father was a Republican. I've gotten to know a lot of Democrats in the last decade, mm -hmm. a lot of Democrats. As my wife said one time, leaving a, a rally for Tim McCain, Jim Webb, and Mark Warner in the parking lot of a middle school where the rally was taking place, she said, looking at me, these aren't bad people. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, pulling her chain a little bit. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, all those darkly looking white lawyers that we go to meetings with, with the Republicans, leave me cold most of the time. These people are actually human beings. Well, my wife had a lot of, uh, uh, truth in her observation, I think. Uh, Democrats were just as much convinced that Trump and the Republicans had done something to them mm -hmm. in 2016, and even more so in 2000, the election that I took advantage of and moved into the State Department to be a member of that administration, whom the Supreme Court, not the American voter, the American voter did not vote for George W. Bush, but he got put in the White House. They just don't express it the same way. <laughs> They're not as ruthless. They're not as mean-hearted and mean-spirited as my political party. So it's there, but that makes it perhaps the way you couched it even more dangerous because both sides essentially feel like the system doesn't work anymore. And I think that's a fair approximation of a sentiment across the country that it doesn't work anymore. One of the things President Biden is doing right now if you've watched his speeches and, and more important than that, looked at some of the actions they've taken, is trying to do something about that uh, to prove to the American people that government can be trusted, whether it's vaccines or payments or whatever, to prove that the government does work, to prove that it's not disposed to punish them, to prove, and this is huge on both sides of the political spectrum and even more important because more Americans are independents now, than Democrats and Republicans, hmm. with them too, to prove that the oligarchs, the rich people, the Jeff Bezoses, the uh, Elon Musks, the, all these people that we're constantly hearing about, and many of those we don't hear about, like Robert Mercer and so forth, Sheldon Adelson now in his grave, but his wife's still alive and still very wealthy, um, that they don't run us. They really do not run this country and therefore make the decisions for all the rest of us and just leave us as slaves thinking we're free. Uh, a very great philosopher once said, there's nothing more dangerous in the world than a person who thinks they're free and is not. 
Well, there are a lot of Americans who are beginning to come to that realization that maybe they aren't in charge, nor is their democracy in charge, in charge, nor is their government in charge. Those people in charge are behind the scenes. They're pulling the strings of the puppets in government and so forth. There's enough truth to that to make it vigorously believed, especially in the halls of conspiracy and in the halls that surround those people of which now we've got clear indications, probably 40 to 50% of America. Um, that's dangerous, as you just pointed out, it's extremely dangerous. And it might mean that even if we were to find an off-road from empire, a way to adjust to our power and adjust the world to our power that would be more conducive to everyone's lives, even if we were to find that, we'd fall apart internally, we'd disintegrate, which I think would be a grievous blow to any kind of effort to bring the world to the point where it can confront things like nuclear weapons, climate change, and so forth. Um, but it's a possibility. I think on January the 6th, a lot of Americans awakened to that possibility. We could actually fall apart. On that note of what uh, the remark at the at the rally in the uh, middle school parking lot of, oh, these people aren't that bad. Well, perhaps if both sides had a little more of that, of, oh, I... I'm spending some time with people with different beliefs than me. You know, they're actually not that bad. We have some common ground. That's where it begins. Um, that's absolutely true. And, and and hopefully that's the direction we can begin to head. But I look out and we, as you say, we do see some of the Republican Party with these conspiratorial beliefs. But then you look at the Democrats and it could almost be argued as worse where I'm seeing a complete lack of concern and more of just kind of a, oh, well, those people are so silly or stupid. They don't, I can't believe they'd believe that. And that's kind of it. There's not really a discussion of what could this lead to or, or any empathy for someone feeling that way. It is, are you feeling any tension here as well of, I feel like there's a massive group of people on the Democratic side who are kind of just blowing all this off. I think you're onto something. And I think we've set it up to a certain extent for a denouement, as my French friends would say, an outcome. Hmm. And that's going to come in 2024. Because I don't think we've settled anything. I think we had a terrific election. I think it was basically, I monitored it with the two groups I was a member of. It was basically free and fair. Um, and it turned out more voters than ever in our history. Part of that, of course, is our population is greater, but percentage-wise, it turned out more voters than ever in our history. Um, huge turnout for both sides. What's going to happen in 2024? Because I can almost guarantee you the current incumbent is not going to run again. I mean, he said he's not. Plus, I'm, I, I hate to say this, but the man is as old as I am or older. I mean, I'm 76. I think he'll be 80, 81, 82 before he, this is, so what's going to happen? Is the country going to accept Kamala Harris as the Democratic candidate for president? Indeed, is the Democratic Party going to accept her as a Democratic candidate? And who's going to come back for the Republicans? I don't think it's going to be Donald Trump. I think he's going to do everything he can and is doing everything he can to sunder the Republican Party right now. So they've, they've got some real serious come to Jesus meetings to have amongst themselves in the Republican Party. 
what do we want to be, mom? Um, they've got to have that serious discussion. Still, 2024 is not going to present us with a real accomplishment in terms of what you and I were just discussing. People coming back together, trusting the government or whatever, and, and getting on with our republic and our democracy. Um, so I see it, this train is still coming down the track full bore with its headlights on and, and, and coming at us. Perhaps if we could dive a little bit into QAnon for a moment, I'd, I'd love to get more of your thoughts on this. And so I, when the inauguration happened on all the QAnon boards, this was the day, uh, th this was the reckoning in their words. Obviously nothing came to pass. We were going to see mass arrests uh, on television, all, all this stuff. Nothing happened. And I really worry about uh, there's such an environment now where there could be more radicalization in that you have all this passion. And the whole premise of QAnon is the supporters of QAnon are keyboard warriors. They're virtual warriors. They're in a battle, but they're doing it online. And they're doing it through memes and trolling and all this stuff and researching. But now we perhaps have this environment where that story didn't play out. The real world warriors, the military, Donald Trump, didn't create that storm, that reckoning, that, that washout that was supposed to come. And so I worry that there's going to be some of these virtual warriors primed and ready to become real world warriors. Do you, do you see that at all? Are, are you noticing any of this? Is, is this on your radar at all? Or am I just over here worrying about things I shouldn't be worrying about? <laughs> no, I, I read reports every day, um, both from what I call almost NGO intel groups, non-governmental organization intel groups, like mm -hmm. Ali Soufan's group, Ali being the really tremendously competent FBI agent who rolled up the first World Trade Center bombing, uh, really rolled up the uh, attacks in Africa, and had a lot to do with coal, USS Coal in Port Aden, Yemen, when she was hit by Al-Qaeda. Um, probably the most competent counter-terrorist expert I've ever met. And I read his report every day. He hmm. sends it to me every day and I read it. I'm very much concerned. Is this a public thing or is this something that you have access to? Uh, you have to subscribe to it. Yeah. Oh, Unless gotcha. you're a good bud. <laughs> so, so folks could, so folks could yeah. sign up to this if they wanted yeah. to. Okay. Yeah, you can. Awesome. Uh, Ali Sufan. It's called the Sufan group. S-O-U-F-A-N. Born in Lebanon, speaks fluent Arabic and um, was the most competent counterterrorism guy I ever met when I was in government. Wow. Um, and he, he really is worried about what, you, what he calls domestic terrorism. He mm -hmm. says it's far worse in terms of its potential than in any international terrorist right now. Jamal Islamiyah, Lashkar-e Taiba, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you name it. He's, he's more fearful of these domestic terrorists. Increasingly so is the FBI leadership. They won't go out and put this on a stick and wave it around, but they are. And they'll tell you there are two reasons for it. One, they are very concerned because they don't have a lot of intelligence like they do on the international groups. And two, they don't know how to monitor them because they're pretty slick. They're domestic. Hmm. They know how to secure their transmissions. And they worry about them in the way that, say, you might have worried about Timothy McVeigh. You don't even know Timothy McVeigh's name until the uh, federal building <laughs> blows up and you've got all these casualties. So 
that's that's one reason I'm concerned. A second reason is I've been studying, and I now understand. I think the uh, sort of the coexistence and the sharing between what I call the Great Awakening, which would be the about the third Great Awakening we've had in this country. The last one sort of ended with the Scopes trial uh, and with Prohibition, and in 1933, the repeal of Prohibition, which produced nationalized crime, if you will, nationalized organized crime. Um, we, we're in the third one now. Some would say, no, Wilkerson, you're wrong. It's the fourth or the fifth. I think it's the third great awakening. What do I mean by that? 100 million American evangelicals, 100 million. Almost a third of this country are evangelicals. Many of those are great people. They, they follow the teachings of Christ uh, the way I think Christ meant those teaches, teachings to be followed. They're humble people. They want to protect the environment. They quote the Bible where it says we should be good stewards of the earth and so forth. Good people. But a lot of them are fundamentalists in the sense that the Taliban are fundamentalists mm -hmm. or ISIS is fundamentalist. They have merged in many respects with QAnon and other groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers and so forth. That's very disturbing because that brings not only a, a great deal of numbers into their ranks, but it also brings this messianic idea of the end times and the rapture and a seeking for those end times mm -hmm. and that rapture. Um, and let's bring it about. And the way you bring it about, of course, is Christ comes back to earth with a flaming sword, or as one army three-star general said, ain't going to be no flaming sword. It's going to be an AR-15. Lieutenant General Boykin yeah. <laughs> in public. <laughs> and, and, and they think that's what they're working toward. You put all that together, that chemistry together, and all those numbers together, and I think you have the potential for some real problems, significant problems inside the country. Yeah, not only does it stay in a, um, a worldview of religion like we've seen Islamic terrorists staying yes. Islam, it it also is sabotaging the power that a narrative like that can have on someone of, it's on me to bring about this spiritual cleansing through a physical cleansing, yes, as it were. I would, is, I would say this, there, there, is, there is a tinge now mm -hmm. of a reaction from not just mainstream Christians like the Methodists and the Catholics and so forth, but from what I would call megachurch Christians, Christians who heretofore have been susceptible perhaps to some of this message, who are now recoiling. They're particularly recoiling from this message of the prosperity gospel. Mm -hmm. And that's, if you know anything about that, that just says, if you're a millionaire, God is loving you. Yes. Now, if you've got two Lockheed executive jets, God is loving you even more. <laughs> and they are repelled by that, as they should be. Anyone who's read the New Testament, I mean, in Greek, Latin, Hebrew, or whatever, uh, you know that Christ threw the moneylenders out of the temple. It was the only time he lost his temper. You know, it's, it's not really Christian. And yet there are some preachers, Joel Osteen being at the top of the list, who have brought this about and, and said, get me another, put the money in the plate and I'll buy myself another executive jet. Mm -hmm. And they and, and their members say, oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, there are some Christians who are beginning to recoil at that. 
and back away from it. And I'm watching that carefully. I hope the numbers start growing in that sense because a return to the tenets of Christianity wouldn't hurt this country at all. The real tenets. <laughs> yes, exactly. There, I think the separation between the the Bible of grace and the Bible of work harder, and then you can get those jets. You got it. <laughs> grace is the right word. Grace is the single word in the English language. I think that sums up their spirit of Christianity as as Christ advanced it. So we have we have this group of folks, this unbridled passion, and it's being released in many different ways. Is there a way that we can yet navigate all this passion of, of Q, QAnon and all these types of conspiracies towards voting? Can, can we see that in the next four years in 2024 or three years? Or is it the point of no return almost? And it's kind of, we're gonna watch the story play out regardless. I think we need to watch the midterms closely, very closely. Um, if you've read Nancy McLean's book, Democracy in Chains, um, it's almost an expose on Charles Koch. And you know what Koch and his industries and his millions, if not billions of dollars have done over the last 35, 40 years. They have literally bought state legislatures. So what we have now, what you're seeing right now in these state legislatures, passing vote, voting for uh, legislation that curbs people's voting rights, uh, no absentee voting, no early voting. Uh, you can't go out and give somebody a ride to the polling place. That's against the law, you know, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and, and that's clearly in the Republicans' interest to do that. So when we, when we hit the 30, I think it's 35 state legislatures now that Koch has bought. They, they belong oh. to the Republicans. So when we get to the midterms, and if we see an overwhelming Republican string of victories across the country, particularly those states, and they're some of them are key states, we're in trouble, I think. I think we're in trouble. If we see the forces of democracy, as it were, stand up in each of these states or a good number of them against those forces and defeat them, joined by what uh, is apparently happening at the federal level to try and enhance people's right to vote rather than, and this is all self-interest, uh, Democrats in power, they want people to vote because the more people that vote, they think are going to vote for them. They might be surprised. And then the Republicans might be surprised in this vein too. For example, in some states, and I, I watch this really closely. I have the data on it. In some states, more Republicans voted mail-in vote than Democrats did. <laughs> and the huh. tradition of mail-in voting is Republicans using it. And, and it, it, there's some curious demographic factors that go along with that in each of the states. But uh, Colorado's had voting, for example, by mail for over 20 years and, and had very little, if any, fraud, and it's been very efficient. So it's not, it just became an issue because Trump made it an issue. It shouldn't be an issue. The results of the midterm, though, and then, as I said, 2024 uh, presidential election and the national election there, too, uh, in terms of senators and representatives, are going to be very, very indic indicative of our future, I think. Um, I hope I live that long so I can at least see what, what per perks up out of the coffee pot. Um, we're going to see a reasonable display of democracy that'll be uh, a little bit contentious and so forth, but it'll, it'll put people in place who are young people, mostly, who are more interested in governing than power. 
Um, hmm. Most of my kids are that way at William Mary. My kids were that way at George Washington University when I taught there. That's the way they feel. Um, they're not interested in power, not interested that much in wealth uh, because I saw a dramatic drop off during my time, my 16 years in people going to Goldman Sachs versus people going to work for the federal or state or local government or some other public service. Hmm. That was a very encouraging trend. And I think it's happening elsewhere too. In fact, I heard the other day from a friend of mine at Goldman Sachs that they're having trouble recruiting. I said, good, <laughs> good. <laughs> I'm glad you're having trouble recruiting. Right. How, how should we doubt that Goldman Sachs is gonna run circles around the SEC for example, the Securities and Exchange Commission, or any government regulatory body, when the creme de la creme of Yale, Harvard, Stanford, Princeton has gone to Wall Street for 35 years and made millions. Um, and what does that put at, uh, at the government's foot, uh, at their door, in their offices? Well, it puts the also rants. It puts the guys who went to the School of Education and, and couldn't cut it and dropped out, but got a degree in something. And you know, I'm not trying to deride other schools and universities. I'm just saying, when you put the creme de la creme year after year after year in a particular part of your infrastructure, don't be surprised when that infrastructure outruns everyone else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's gonna happen. It's just a natural, natural thing. So if these people are turning that around, these young people, these talented, energetic, dynam dynamic, interested in the future young people are turning around, going to public service, for example, instead of Goldman Sachs, instead of Wall Street, that's a sea change. And that could affect this. And I think we're gonna start seeing some of those effects as early as the midterms and then the 2024 elections and on. I hope, I hope, I sincerely hope. Interesting. Well, I believe we have one millennial senator. So it's it's begun, at least in the Senate, and that tends to yeah, be I think you're right. generally older. And other than the Georgia uh, representative, we need to see more women. Yeah. You know, we have a country that is 51% female now, 51% female. And the Congress is still somewhere down there around 22% female. Really? Uh, and, yeah, I didn't realize other, it was still that low. And if you look at other corporate entities and so forth, you know, it's still not where it should be. It, it, wow. If, if you have uh, half of your population ought to be roughly, I'm not saying it's ever going to be perfect, but if you do a, a nationwide look in all the elements of, of employment and you see it's not at least 60, 40 or 55, yeah. 45 or whatever, then, then you're wrong. Yeah, mm -hmm. you're cutting out a whole portion of your population. And it's, of course, worse for Blacks. I want to get to a point you brought up a moment ago, but this reminded me of Warren Buffett. He mentioned something along the lines that it doesn't matter how horrible the outlook for America might look in the interim or whatever. His ultimate uh, view on the states is so bullish because we've yet to truly bring half of the workforce online which is obviously women. And he's like, once we can unlock that intellectual vision and power, he's like, sky's the limit. And so I've always thought about that. I never, I never quite thought about investing terms like that, but if Warren Buffett is bullish on women in America, I'm like, oh, that's a good, I like that. Well, let me tell you about my seminars and the dynamic in my seminars. I always try to achieve at least 50-50. 
I rarely succeed because unfortunately women don't take to national security and the kinds of things I teach like men do. But when I do achieve a near parity in my seminar, it's a different seminar, much better seminar, incredibly more variegated discussion, more creative, imaginative solutions in papers and in uh, case study presentations and everything. But when women fall off to two out of 15 or three out of 15, um, they don't speak up as much. They don't mm -hmm. take part as much. They just exist in the seminar. It's the same thing in corporate America. It's the same thing in the Congress. You have no idea how many female Congress women have told me how cowed they feel when they're in a committee meeting and there's 12 men in there and one woman. Um, and and that's just that's just physiognomy. That's, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, it's 5,000 years of male domination. <laughs> yeah, if I was alone in a group of all women, I, I wouldn't speak up yeah, as much in the same way would. either. Of course you would. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. Uh, it's just different. Harper's Magazine published a report a couple of years ago on this. They studied corporate America, Congress, the clergy, the legal profession, a number of other places where you would say it was the equivalent of middle level management or above. Mm -hmm. And they found whenever the percentages were close, it was a much more dynamic, energetic, creative, imaginative decision-making process for that group than it was if women were one or two. I mean, it, it's so clear. <laughs> and yet, you know, we've defied it for millennia. Yeah. If you're listening or watching and this surprises you, you need to think about this a little more. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> if you're like, what, why would it be like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so a moment ago, we're speaking about um, a disenfranchised group, perhaps by their own making QAnon, because we saw their a lot of their verbiage during the uh, Capitol riots and when stop the count and all this stuff of we're not gonna we're not gonna vote anymore because the system's rigged. <clears throat> and so you have a group that's possibly wanting to remove itself from the democratic process. That that could switch. They tend to be quite mobile with their. Um, Yep. their missions and their their views so that could obviously change and then you're speaking about when we're no longer seeing these big investment firms just being flooded with new brain power it actually makes me think of the crypto world and how right now that seems like possibly one of the largest brain drains going on at the moment we're seeing so much intellect and creativity just flooding into that industry. And in your words, you just mentioned when you're seeing a huge flow of creativity and intellect, watch out because they're building something big. And perhaps we're seeing all this voting passion, all these democratic desires of QAnon, they want change, they want change. People feel like they've been cut out possibly from globalization. That's a whole nother argument of why they've been cut out, but people want change and they're enacting it. And then we're seeing this other arm of America being built out because people want change from the legacy financial system and players like Goldman Sachs and all this stuff and just this system of privatized gains and socialized losses. So perhaps we're seeing many different forms of power and structure being constructed outside of the typical establishment that we call the 
the power of I don't, I don't know what I put put to words on that, but just the power of the U.S. and and our democratic and our state systems. Are, do you think of it like that at all? Are we just building our own world outside of the old world, and eventually we'll just live in this new? I'm going to give it to you, Lars, because I think I've made my point. <laughs> no, the, the, what you describe, what you describe is, it's as well summed up as any place I have ever seen it in language, both mathematical language, that is to say graphs, statistical and otherwise, and in natural language. Uh, in Thomas Piketty's new book, The French Economist, Capital and Ideology. Hmm. And I'm going to do injustice to his marvelous humility and his incredible grasp of data and detail about a thousand years of economies and societies. But it, it, this is what I get from him. You have always had for 5,000 years of human history, inequality regimes in the beginning, as it were. <laughs> They were things like the clergy, the king, the nobility, and everybody else. Mm -hmm. And what you did when you had this was you had these people, the Milton Friedmans of the world, if you will, or the, you know, what's a guy on the other side of the aisle, uh, the guy who writes for the New York Times, I forget his name right now, Krugman. Uh, you've got these people who write the ideology to justify the inequality. Interesting. And one of the, one of the examples he uses, I'm sure you're familiar with the Gini coefficient. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be, when it's looked at, indicative of who's got a fairly equally wealth sharing society and who's terrible. As you might imagine, Saudi Arabia, no one would argue, they're terrible. 90% plus of the wealth in the country is in the hands of a family of 300. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. Ours ain't too good either right now, but it is much better than Saudi Arabia's. And yet, Piketty says that Gini coefficient is a part of the tools of the current ideology to justify our present inequality regime. So what you're talking about is exactly that. And yet when someone breaks out, as you just indicated, there's no guarantee that when they break out, write a new ideology, write a new regime that, that's going to be positive. It might be like the French Revolution and produce Napoleon and, you know, 15 years of bloodshed all across Europe. Um, but that's the only way you make progress. And so you pray, <laughs> you go on bended knee and you pray that this breakout from the current inequality regime and its perfecting ideology is positive in the net. They're never all positive, <laughs> yeah. rather than negative in the net, like the French Revolution. Um, 1789 on was pretty bitter for the French. Lots of people died. Lots of people died. And, and Europe suffered from Napoleon marching from one country to the other. Um, it was so bad, so bad that it produced 100 years of peace <laughs> afterwards, because everybody said, <laughs> in essence, not going to do that again. Anyone alive um, was like, never again. Yeah, yeah. So... You know, and in, interestingly, too, Piketty doesn't go into this in great detail, but he does take his hat off to it. Pandemics do a lot, if not major 
her stuff to influence these sorts of things. Pandemics like the one we're going through right now, or like the one that killed half of Europe, the plague, the Black Plague, the Black Death. Um, so, you know, where are we going to come out of this and what is the phenomena you just described going to do to make us come out of this or shape the way we come out of this? I'm not competent to answer that, but I do think Piketty's on to something. I think this is kind of the way the currents of history, particularly economic and financial history, which after all is at the end of the day important for everyone, um, it's the way they flow out. Can you think of any time in history that is somewhat similar to what we're living through? If someone wanted to open some, crack open some history books and just learn about another time that was, I'm not, I'm not saying yeah. carbon copy, but people are dealing with similar tensions. For us, and it's a reason that I've, uh, in the last year, year and a half, I've just dumped myself in this period, 1850 to 1860 is very similar. Very oh, well, that's worse. Uh, in, in, in political terms and tyranny of the majority, tyranny of the minority, minority, of course, in, at that time was slave owning minority, but it owned our country. It owned our country so much that it pushed us in the war with Mexico, which General Grant, as then Captain Grant, said was the most unjust war in our history. <laughs> he was right. It was a war of territorial aggrandizement in order to enhance the territory that could hold slaves and thus balance the territory that didn't have slaves, most notably Texas. <laughs> but in any way, at any rate, the, the same kind of uh, political dynamics were playing at that time. And we impeached Andrew Johnson, uh, not successfully removed him from office, but it came very close. Um, that period in that sense, but I don't think to answer your question directly, and I hope more perceptively, I don't think there's a period in our history, short as it is, that reflects what's going on now. Um, there are a lot of similarities with Andrew Jackson, maybe with uh, John C. Calhoun and the nullification movement, um, the different parties that broke out, the Free Soilers, the uh, radical uh, Republicans and the war Democrats and the non-war Democrats, all those things that happened in that period. Um, and incompetent presidents, absolutely incompetent presidents until Lincoln came along. And who knows what Lincoln would have been actually, had it not been for the war, um, to make him great in a sense. Uh, a lot of similarities, but very dissimilar in terms, I think, of where we are now and where we might go. There was no place to go from the Civil War except straight down and be two countries, one supported by England and maybe some others against the other one supported by the rest of the world, one with merchants and all manner of commerce and the other with a slave society that was damned eventually, but would hang on for a while. God knows what that would have produced. Now, you know, if we fell apart, we'd fall apart in at least nine different regions. <laughs> yeah. we, we'd have all, we'd have Texans going one way and New Hampshireites going another way and Vermonters saying, do we follow them or just hang with Canada? You know, it'd be, it'd be a mess. It's a different, different time, no, no question about it. And things are so accelerated now. I mean, maybe you don't see that, but as an old dude like me, I see that. Things are just so accelerated now. Um, things that happened over a decade or two decades happen now in a matter of weeks. Hmm. Um, and, and, and they have the same kind of repercussions, but they don't have the same kind of political repercussions because the, the, 
the political structure, and here's a comment I think that's important, can't absorb it. Hmm. It can't keep up with the change, which is worrisome too, because that is a call for fascism or some sort of authoritarianism, some sort of dictator who can at least appear to keep up with the times, as it were. Governments can't. They, they, they simply can't, especially not one as ponderous and bureaucratic and hugely overpopulated as ours. Uh, we have a patronage system now that would make Lincoln, who said, there's too many pigs for the tits, <laughs> you know, make Lincoln, he would say, wow, <laughs> I didn't have a patronage problem. <laughs> because half the things that go on in government now are patronage. They're, they're patronage, pure and simple. You know, come on in and make a little money, dude. That's an Donald important Trump point. Took, yeah, Donald Trump just took the wrappers off that. He said, everybody in my family, come on in and make, make a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, if only we could take the best of both of our political parties instead of the worst of both of our political parties. It's all about character. You know, I, I was just on a panel about me lie. And, and on that panel was a man for whom I have a great deal of respect, uh, professor of uh, history and research at the University of Alabama Emeritus, who wrote the book on My Lai, the tragic massacre in 1968 in Vietnam. And he was on there with me. And I, and I said, I've got your book right here. Uh, your book is just incredible. And he said, well, thank you. That's two of us. <laughs> and I said, Professor, that's a comment on the country. That's a comment on the country. We not only don't want accountability, we don't want to read about the atrocity. No. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, just a tragic set of events. And what did we do? We took that Lieutenant Callie and Nixon pardoned him. We took the captain, Medina, and didn't do much to him except more or less ruin his military career. I mean, you don't go out of that into a successful military career, but there was really no accountability for that. And we killed 504 women and children or more. I mean, that's the official figure. Uh, and it wow. was horrible. And when this warrant officer, Hugh Thompson, landed his little helicopter in the middle of it, three times he landed, and he saved 12 people. He couldn't carry any more on his helicopter. His career was ruined. Absolutely ruined. It took 35, 40 years before, right before he died of cancer a few years ago, they gave him a medal. They finally recognized his heroism and gave him a medal. That's us. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't want to take cheap shots and compare the U.S. to Rome in its late days, but there is a certain comparison when you bring that point up of when the state exists almost solely to maintain the state and the, the pigs at the tit, as Lincoln said, <laughs> then it, it's doomed to only support that and eventually there will be a regime shift and so i you think said it, it. <laughs> yeah and I, and I think that's challenging for people to hear because it sounds conspiratorial because it sounds very similar to what we're just talking about q and on the deep state when that gets back to the point before where the left seems to really just dismiss blanket all these things and they don't want to like, oh, that's a conspiracy. Well, there, there often are certain truths and things. And, and of course, there's just full-on conspiracies. 
but so talking about say the revolving door in the state and Lockheed Martin and the industrial military complex, like these are, these are real things. And so to be afraid to think about that because it sounds conspiratorial is just, I don't know, to distance yourself cognitively, I suppose, but it's a tough tension because we don't want to profligate conspiracies. We also don't want to ignore the realities of a broken system until it just falls apart from the weight of its own self. You know, there are things happening though. One of them I was privy to yesterday, um, the Rhode Island state legislature in their house is advancing legislation to pull all of Rhode Island's public money investment out of military defense contractors. And Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Grumman were specifically cited. Wow. Um, that's a positive move. And some of us sent notes to the Rhode Island legislature last night saying, good on you. Keep going. <laughs> we're for this legislation. We know we're not Rhode Islanders, but we're for it and we're supporting you. Um, that's a small effort, but it is the kind of effort I think that needs to happen. I just finished a, an hour and a half long session with the Norwegian ambassador, the ambassador of Canada, a number of reps from the United States Department of Defense and elsewhere on climate change, but particularly focused on the Arctic. And one of the things I, I wanted to scream at them, unfortunately, it was not interactive. It was one way, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I wanted to scream at them. Why are you bringing all this legacy thinking into a pristine security environment like the Arctic? Hmm. Now, not totally pristine because we and the Soviets put submarines onto the ice, as you well know, for years during the Cold War. Um, but basically pristine. We haven't had any wars up there. We haven't had any sword fights, machine guns, or anything else up there. Why take legacy thinking into that region? But they're all doing that. The Norwegians, the, the Canadians, they're all doing that. I understand they don't have a template for thinking about it any different than that. Do you Where have a specific... Do you have a specific example well, of like a you, what is a legacy effort they're a, attempting? A legacy to? way of thinking about it is we need a security arrangement and NATO needs to participate in it. And we need to be able to, to take on those Russians and those Chinese when they come up there and inevitably do the dastardly deeds they're going to do. Hmm. You know, when the whole history, short as it is, of the Arctic Council now is cooperation, is keeping things on an even keel not fighting over this last region of the world. Of course, it applies to Antarctica too, which now China's plowing around in as if it looks like, and you know if China's plowing around in the Antarctic, and how do I know this? My DOD friends have let me know it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> if China's plowing around down there, we're gonna start fighting the Antarctic is someplace that we need to you know, send the aircraft carriers and all the rest of this. Let's don't approach it from that point of view. My God, here's a clean sheet of music. Let's start with the idea that we're going to cooperate. We're going to cooperate on fish stocks that are going to be available to people that were never available to them before. Because if we bleed them out, where are we going to find any fish? You know, 68% of the protein 
for people in the South China Sea region comes from the South China Sea. Uh, okay, we're bleeding out the fish stocks there too. In fact, some of them are already below sustainable levels. Ah, we need to stop this kind of crap, you know? And why not start there? Why not talk about the Arctic the way the Arctic Council talks about it? Do you know the Arctic Council has no responsibility for security? It refused to put it on its agenda. Has responsibility for search and rescue, for reaction to a nuclear disaster because the Russians have nuclear icebreakers and we all know how the Russians respond to nuclear accidents. It's focused on fisheries and protecting those fisheries. It's focused on indigenous peoples who live in Norway, Canada, Russia, and need to have their life and their livelihood protected. Not a word about security. When Mike Pompeo went there as the US representative, he screwed all that up. He started hollering at China and talking about China's threat to security in the Arctic area. You should see the photos of the other ambassadors looking at him. It's like, get out of here, you pig, you thug, because they understand that's the kind of environment they have in the Arctic Council. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep it that way. Let's don't bring our legacy thinking into the Arctic. Interesting. Well, <clears throat> we're getting towards the end. Maybe that's a good way to wrap up is if we could only just learn a little more about the person we disagree with and perhaps seek some kind of dialogue and compromise instead of starting with a wall and starting with confrontation and escalation. Said it a lot better than I did. That's exactly <laughs> no. what I'm talking about. <laughs> Doubt that, but well, Lawrence, this has been a great treat. I certainly appreciate your time. Good to be on with you. Wonderful. Hope to speak soon. Take care. Stay safe. Here at the Empire's New Clothes, we believe something big is in America's future, but we don't quite know what. If you'd like to continue the journey with us, like, subscribe, and let us know who you want us to interview next in the comments below. This next decade is going to be crazy, so join us as we try to figure out what's going on, and I look forward to seeing you next week.